Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. I'm Rai Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for patients and families and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical illness, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share with you information that will help you take better care of yourself and your loved ones. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Respiratory Inspirations. I'm Dan Culver, the chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine, and I'll be your guest host for today's episode. We're very fortunate to have two guests with us today, Dr. Francisco Almeida, the head of the fibrosing mediastinitis program here at Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Atul Mata, the section head of the general pulmonary medicine section. Today we'll be talking about an enigmatic pulmonary disorder, fibrosing mediastinitis. Welcome. Hello, Dan. Great to be here talking to you today. Hello, Dan. Looking forward. So, fibrosing mediastinitis is a mouthful. Can you give us a brief definition about what this syndrome is? Well, then, uh, fibrosing mediastinitis is an uncommon condition characterized by a significant buildup of a dense scarring, as we call in medically fibrosis or fibrotic tissue. And this scarring builds up in the mediastinum. The mediastinum is the area in the chest between the two lungs. And also you can have this scarring buildup in the hilar areas. The hilar are the areas that sit sort of between the lung and the mediastinum or the area between the lobes of the lung. You know, the left lung has two lobes, the right lung has three lobes, so in between those areas. So that's pretty much the definition of fibrosis mediastinitis. So I imagine as the scarring builds up, it causes some problems. What, Cor- what, what does it do in the mediastinum Cor- when correct. it builds up? Correct, correct. Yeah, so it, as this scarring builds up, it keeps growing and growing. It can compress important structures within the chest. Those structures can be vessels. So it can be large vessels or small vessels. And even small, small vessels can be impactful for the patients. It can narrow or occlude airways, so that can take away some of the air going in and out of the lungs. It can even compress the esophagus, where the food goes through to get into the stomach. So sometimes patients can have uh, trouble swallowing. So between these compressions, the patients can cough up blood, they can have shortness of breath, they can have wheezing, sometimes they can have tightness or, or, or chest pain. So that's pretty much what most patients end up feeling depending on where the scarring develops and grows. It sounds like a pretty challenging disease. And of course, the symptoms you describe can really be found in many different kind of pulmonary problems. If you're a patient listening to this, what, what should make you ask your physician about the possibility of fibrosing mediastinitis? What would lead the patient to be suspicious that this could be the problem going on? Yeah, the first thing is, as um, Dr. Almeida was referring to, that 
the main cause is a fungal infection. So if you are from the area of Ohio, Mississippi, or Missouri River Valley areas, and your treatment for said pulmonary condition is not working properly. For an example, you're told that you have asthma, but the asthma medications is not helping you. Under those circumstances, and if you have had history of fungal infections or histoplasmosis, I think those patients should ask their physician a question. Could this be the side effects or could this be the progression of my fungal infection of histo? Could this be leading to fibrosis or scarring of my mediastinum producing shortness of breath? If you have hemoptysis in a young patient where there is no risk for any other conditions. You mean coughing up blood. You may be coughing up blood as a result of this along with shortness of breath, yes. That also should raise the flag and say, could I have something like scarring in my mediastinum? Of course, we see a lot of histoplasmosis here in Ohio and the areas you mentioned. I suppose that people are familiar with that. There are some other things that can cause this syndrome as well, aren't there? Oh, absolutely. Other infections as tuberculosis, of course, it is very rare in this country, but infections such as tuberculosis, we have large population of immigrants, so we should keep that thing in mind, can cause that. There are several other conditions which we refer to as collagen vascular disease, such as lupus. I'm sure you've heard the term lupus. Those collagen vascular disease conditions uh, can also lead to scarring in the lung. A very rare cause, again, in this country, one should keep it in mind, especially patients who have had HIV-positive disease, is syphilis can also cause fibrosing mediastinitis. And on occasion, it is what we refer as unknown cause or idiopathic fibrosing mediastinitis has been seen. If you have had prior radiation to your chest for Hodgkin's lymphoma or other lymphoma-like conditions, that can also lead to scarring of the mediastinum. So lots of different things to keep in Absolutely. mind there. Yeah. And as you mentioned, uh, Francisco, there are many ways the patient can present. Can, can you talk a little bit about how the diagnosis is made and you know, how the multidisciplinary team works together to make the diagnosis? Yeah, so as Dr. Mata mentioned, in patients who have certain symptoms that are not getting better, the classic example is probably asthma, in which they are told they have asthma and they're short of breath, not getting better. So the next step, if not yet done, is to get some type of imaging. And initially, doctors may obtain a chest X-ray, but a, a CAT scan of the chest is the, the test that most of the times will make a diagnosis. So most patients don't even need a biopsy. The CAT scan findings and conjunction with where the patient comes from, the potential history of histoplasmosis, there are certain findings on the, the CAT scan that are classic of histoplasmosis infection, mostly prior infection. It's important to say here to the patients that the vast majority of fibrosis mediastinitis, there's no active infection. The infection happened in the past, and this is a reaction to that infection that keeps ongoing. So that's the main way of making a diagnosis. However, 
Sometimes uh, that CAT scan alone is not sufficient because there are other conditions that could mimic those findings. One of those conditions is a like a cancer of the lymph nodes called lymphoma. So in these cases, we need the help of our radiology colleagues to discuss with them. Sometimes we talk to our infectious diseases colleagues to say, hey, do you think there's a, an infection ongoing right now? And sometimes we need the help of our other colleagues within the field. So sometimes we need to do a procedure called bronchoscopy with endobronchial ultrasound to sample that lesion. When that's not possible, we may need to ask a surgeon to do a surgical biopsy or an interventional radiologist to do a biopsy through the chest. So there are many ways that we, we work as a team to try to figure out the best way to confirm the diagnosis and to make sure we're not missing an alternative possibility. So you're a bronchoscopist. You mentioned bronchoscopy. Is that always a good idea? What are the kinds of things you do with a bronchoscope in patients with fibrosing mediastinitis? And you know, what do people need to know about before they think about doing something like that? Yeah, that's a great question, Dan. You know, even though I'm a bronchoscopist, I probably do that better than I ride a bike. Granted, I'm not a, a great bike rider. That's so, not saying very much for sure. Yeah, so that doesn't say a whole lot, but <laughs> I think I'm, I've seen him doing bronchoscopy. <laughs> but I'm pretty good, I think, I think, at doing bronchoscopies. I think but so. But this is a situation that I don't take the decision lightly of doing a bronchoscopy actually for any patient. So I, sometimes Dr. Meadow likes to say, you know, the, the best bronchoscopist is the one that knows when not to do it. And this is a type of patient that you have to be very careful. So doing this, this procedure by people who don't, who don't are extremely experienced in doing bronchoscopy, it can be dangerous because these patients have a buildup of vascular uh, vasculature in the airways because of the blockage of the vessels. And that buildup can lead to bleeding on simple, just little needles, just touching the area. They can have significant bleeding. So if you don't have somebody, a bronchoscopist who works with an experienced anesthesiology team to deal with those bleedings, it can be, it can be life-threatening. That's really can be quite dramatic when you look at it. Correct. Right, just visually, what does it look like to see an airway like that? Oh, sometimes you go in and uh, it, you know, the airway generally looks a little pinkish or you know a, a light reddish uh, color. But sometimes you see these vessels that you feel like, oh my goodness, what what's going on in here? And they are so pronounced and so red that sometimes you are afraid of even looking at it because you're afraid that they're going to bleed when that happens, let alone by touching it and biopsying it. So it's very important to, for patients to, before they are recommended to undergo a bronchoscopy, to discuss with their doctor, you know, is this the best approach? You know, is there the support available in case I have an important bleeding? Because sometimes when they bleed, on occasion, the bronchoscopist, as good as they might be, they cannot control that right away. And having that, that multidisciplinary team, an interventional radiologist just down the hall to come, hey, we may need to block this vessel to stop that bleeding. So sometimes that's necessary. It's very rare 
that uh, we get to that point here because of our experience in doing those procedures, but on occasion that becomes necessary. So you're really highlighting that experience is important, but the other thing that I think you mentioned, and really it's a part of the center, is having multiple team members around the table and thinking about this from various different angles. Atul, tell me a little bit about who should be part of a team taking care of fibrosing mediastinitis patients, and how does the team work together to do that? I think this is a very good question for the community. I, the first member of the fibrosing mediastinitis team should be a pulmonologist, a lung doctor. That's number one. And he should be flanked by a new subspecialty of pulmonary medicine that is interventional pulmonology. Between two of them, they can suspect and confirm the diagnosis of fibrosing mediastinitis. And once this diagnosis is made, then other subspecialties need to get involved. Infectious disease specialty to make sure there is no active infection or there is no other infections which we may not have thought about besides the fungal infection. Then comes the role of interventional radiologists. These are radiologists beyond just diagnostic radiologists who can work through the vessels or the airways to help you open up obstructed passages or the blood vessels. This team should also include a thoracic surgeon just in case a thoracic surgery is required or some sort of resection or removal of the broncholith that is a stone inside the mediastinum or calcified lymph node within the mediastinum or the airways is required. So you have to have a team of all these individuals helping us taking care of patients with fibrosing mediastinitis. So one of the things we've seen over the years is that various people do different interventions based on what their skill set is. We've seen people put little tubes inside the blood vessels called stents. We've seen stents inside of the breathing tubes. We've seen other kinds of medical therapies used. I wonder, uh, Francisco, if you can talk a little bit about what range of therapies and therapeutic options do you see as the most helpful, and especially the newer things that are coming out now? Yeah, so these, these therapies to open blockages are for the most part, temporary. You know, for example, a stent in the airway to open the airway. Stents in the airways, they can lead to complications, plugging of the airways by mucus. Sometimes there's some reaction of the airway. Patients can have cough, other complications. So that's a temporary solution while there is a more permanent solution. Stents, you know, these devices to keep the airways, the vasculature open or even the esophagus when needed can sometimes be permanent. But our goal should be to not need to use them. Of course, sometimes those are necessary no matter what, but our goal should, is there a way that we can stop, you know, put a hold on that ongoing inflammation and potentially decrease that inflammation and decrease the size of that scarring tissue so the blockage is relieved so it, it goes away so in the past few years people have been using a drug called rituximab which is a drug that reacts 
or try to prevent or decrease or stop that inflammation. And in some patients, that drug can literally decrease that scarring, which may avoid these other procedures. So that's our ultimate goal. Not everyone is a candidate for that therapy. That depends on certain aspects, on certain tests that we do. There's a test called PET scan that we try to do to see how much inflammation there is in the scarring tissue in which we can consider that drug as a possible treatment. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why shouldn't everybody just take some rituximab and see what it does? Correct. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. So when that inflammation is not shown on the PET scan, there's very little data right now to show that those patients may respond. We need more studies to figure out what we can do for those patients in which that scan called PET scan, P-E-T, doesn't show the inflammation. But when they show the inflammation, it seems like at least two-thirds of the patient patients have a good chance of responding and that inflammation decreasing or going away and the scarring getting smaller and relieving that, that pressure to those compressions. And I suppose rituximab is not without some risks. Correct. It's not a chemotherapy drug, even though it can be used to treat certain types of tumors, such as lymphoma, for instance, but it's a drug also used for certain autoimmune disorders, such as rheumatoid arthritis, for example. So, and it has some potential side effects. You know, there, there are many potential side effects, but most patients do well with it. But it's important to discuss with the patient the risks when that is considered the pros and cons, but for the most part, patients tolerate that well. But yes, like anything we do in medicine, there are potential risks. Atul, if somebody wants to come to the Fibrosing Mediastinitis Center, what can they expect? What will the process be like, and what will their experience be like? We receive patients in two different ways the patients who come from a variety of symptoms and we diagnose fibrosing mediastinitis on those patients, those patients would expect to see an infectious disease specialist, will require a CT scan of the chest, would require probably a CT scan of the chest with the contrast material, that to look at this vasculature or the anatomy of the mediastinum to see all the vessels are open. That is what is required. And if, if we find any obstruction, patient may require to see an interventional radiologist as well, virtually followed by a procedure. And then these patients will be followed for a long time in our outpatient department. Meanwhile, we may or may not treat these patients with oral medications such as antifungal medications or cortisone in that fashion. I just want to point out that not everybody is a candidate for rituximab, as Dr. Francisco mentioned. Um, uh, and I want to point out that rituximab is an intravenous medication. It is given by infusion. It is an expensive medication. And it is not just writing a prescription that you get the medication. Your insurance company will have to give us authorization before we can use that medication. That treatment is over several weeks. 
you know, we repeat the treatment again in six weeks. And then if required, every four to six months, that medication will be given to you in that particular fashion. If you come to us with the diagnosis of fibrosing mediastinitis, the process is much quicker and shorter because we already have the diagnosis and we will take it in that fashion. Patient will be seen either by Dr. Francisco Almeida or myself in the outpatient department with our team. We have a certified nurse who is also helping us coordinate looking after the patients with fibrosing mediastinitis, Hilary Preston. Pearson is helping us take care of these patients as well. We are keeping tab of every patient we see in our department and we remain in contact with them to see how they are progressing. I hope I'm answering your question. Thanks. I think really the key is assessing the patient as an individual and then getting the multidisciplinary specialists around the table to think about how to best approach the diagnosis and the therapy. And that's something that I know is hardwired into the program very much. And we try to do this thing in a single or more, you know, two or three visits to the Cleveland Clinic. We try to coordinate their visits to the Cleveland Clinic in a shortest period of time, the less frequent visits to the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, and uh, just to add, patients can assess our website. There's a fibrosis mediastinitis website where they can even upload some of their data that they have from their local physician, local hospital, and our phone number is there, easy to reach out to us, and we get patients in very quickly when they need to be seen. One feeling about fibrosing mediastinitis that's a sentiment out there still, I think, and certainly it's been there in the past, has been a bit of nihilism, that there's nothing to be done, that this is really something you have to live with. Can you talk just at the end here a little bit about the prognosis nowadays for patients with fibrosing mediastinitis? What do you see and where do you see the future going? Yeah, that's a great question then. Yes, we have seen a lot of pessimism about these patients, but now I think there's some hope, especially with some patients being potential candidates for this treatment that we discussed, the infusion. So those patients can change significantly their quality of life if they are candidates who receive the drug and if they respond. Having said that, most patients, their lifespan is not changed by the disease. So patients who have disease predominantly on one side of one side or the other of the chest, they can they have pretty much the same lifespan of anyone who is completely healthy. If they have predominantly, if their disease affects both sides, that may be impacted, but even those patients can have a normal lifespan. Obviously, our goal is to make them feel better, and we have many options between this drug that we discuss and procedures that done through interventional radiology or interventional cardiology to open up vessels that are occluded or sometimes if the esophagus is occluded to stretch and open that esophagus. So there are a lot of options for patients to feel better. Yet, for the most part, there's no cure, unfortunately, except the occasional patient that has an area that can be taken out by surgery. The surgeon can go in and take that out, but that's generally not the approach we take for most patients. Thank you. Okay, Atul, give us one final word. What one take-home message would you like to leave 
the audience with today. In recent years, there has been significant advancement in radiology, interventional radiology, bronchoscopy, interventional cardiology, that we can relieve the symptoms of patients with fibrosing mediastinitis and improve their welfare. That's good for hope. Francisco, one final word. Yeah, I echo that. I want to tell the patients that we're here to work with you and to be your advocates and the process of the workup of this condition. And we always thrive as a team to make you feel better of this condition that has been very challenging. It is very challenging for patients, their families, and doctors who care for them. But we're here for you, and we'll be happy to take care of you like you're a family member. Thank you. I want to thank you all for joining us today for Respiratory Inspirations. Thank you to Drs. Almeida and Meta. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Inspirations podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at tryedwakemd. MD.